Well, good to see you all. We're going to take time in the book of Ephesians today. We're going to be looking at the whole theme of the love of Christ. Huge theme. Let me start by telling you a story about a preacher who stands up one day in his church and he says, today I'm going to talk to you about loving your enemies, forgiving your enemies. And then he asked the crowds, who here can truly say they've forgiven their enemies? Eventually there was... 60% of hands went up. Uh, Sorry, uh, and then he said, come on. Who who can really say that they've forgiven their enemies? And uh, eventually there was 10% of hands went up. And he said, come on, really? Have you really forgiven your enemies? Eventually, only one lady's hand was still up. And he said, Mrs. Jones, are you saying you've truly forgiven your enemies? He says, yes, my dear, I have. Mrs. Jones, how old are you? And she said, I'm 95. He said, would you mind coming up, Mrs. Jones, and telling us how you can truly say you've forgiven your enemies? He said, yes, son, I will. And she walked to the platform, and she says, it's very simple, you see. I've just outlived them. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that can really change our lives more than anything else, the thing that gets under the surface and motivates people more than anything else that could motivate people, is this thing called the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ we're going to be looking at today. Paul prays for the church at Ephesus that they will grasp and know and understand the love of Christ. Uh, So let's turn there. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Give me a good amen. Amen. Father, I pray that as we look at these verses, that that love that Paul is describing, that incredible, indescribable love, would be revealed to us. I pray that we would be able to know the unknowable. I pray that by your spirit, we would have a grasp today, not just of information in our heads, but of revelation in our hearts that grips us and changes us and motivates us and gives us huge security knowing that we're loved by God. I pray, Father, you'd reveal yourself today. I pray you'd move among us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the book of Ephesians that we've been going through is a journey. And as you're going through the book of Ephesians, you see that Paul takes us from the very beginning and he starts talking about uh, God's plan for humanity. And we discovered in chapter one that God actually planned a plan for you even before you were born. In fact, even before the world was created, before the foundation of the earth, he predestined you, the Bible says. You were on his mind way before he created the whole world. 
He has a plan and purpose for you. And then he talked, Paul went on to talk about God's great plan and purpose for all people and for the church and how the church was going to be a place where there was going to be no racial divides, no cultural divides, no social breakdown. But the church was a place where there was unity in Christ. So he talks about the big picture. He talks about the plan of God. He talks about the church. He talks about God's plan for you. And then he moves on. And here this prayer almost acts as a hinge in the whole book. This is the pivotal point where things change. He's now praying, Father, let them get it. Let them get it. He's praying, God, let them understand this love of Christ that goes beyond understanding. Let them get it. And then significantly, the chapters that follow this point, Paul goes on to talk about how that revelation impacts our life practically. So up till now, it's been painting the picture of God's great plan. Here Paul's praying, now God, let them get it. And then Paul goes on to say, now you've got it, let me tell you how to live with it. And the next chapters we find Paul talking about marriage and relationships and leadership and very practical outworking of Christian life and issues. Because the fact is, when you gain revelation of great truth, it will manifest itself in a changed life. If your life doesn't change as a result of understanding things, then you didn't really understand things. If your life remains identical to how it was before a bit of information came your way, then it didn't penetrate deeper than your head. It hasn't gone deeper into your heart. True revelation brings life change. So Paul's praying here that we'll get revelation. So let's let's go on a journey through these verses. Paul starts by praying to the Father. And he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He talks about the Father. Paul and Jesus referred to God as Father. Now, Paul and Jesus were not the first ones to refer to him as Father. This title, Father, had been used by many other religious groups and philosophies referring to God prior to Paul and Jesus. But they used it in a different way. For example, Zeus was called the father of gods by the Greeks. The Romans called Jupiter the father, the God the father, they referred to Jupiter. So the idea of a god or gods being called father wasn't an unusual idea. It was the way that Paul and Jesus revealed it was totally different. You see, in the Greek language, the word father can mean two different things. It can either mean paternity, in other words, technically you're a dad. Your sperm fertilized an egg, so technically you're the dad. Now that makes, that makes no reference to whether you're a present dad, or a helpful dad, or an Egypt dad. It's just you're technically the dad. That's how people refer to the gods. That's how the Greeks refer to Zeus. God Father. He's, he, technically we came from the gods. That's, that's what it's saying. But the other meaning of the word fatherhoods, father in the, in the Greek language, and this is the way that Paul and Jesus emphasized it, was fatherhood. Not just paternity, but fatherhood. In other words, a father that's utterly involved in his children's lives. A father who takes an interest and is passionate about his children. And that's the way that Jesus Christ and Paul revealed God. Not just as father in the paternal sense, but father in the sense of deeply interested in you. And that's life-changing. 
And that's what human beings are looking for. The idea of father is not just uh, an illustration. It's not just, well, how can we describe God? Okay, he's like a father. Um, it's an illustration. You know, we can understand that because we've got fathers, we're humans. So, well, God's like that. God's like a father. Equally, it's, 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 it's not an illustration, but also it's not, as Freud said, uh, a kind of projection of our desire for some eternal heavenly father. Freud said that we've made up this idea of God being a father just because it's what human beings really want. We want to have this father figure, a, a heavenly father figure, so we've projected this desire onto religion and we've said that God's a father. It's not that either. According to Paul, it says, he says, the father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. He's not just the father. He is the original father. God is not just an illustration that, okay, well, God's, like, you understand fathers? Well, that's what God's like. That's not what, that's not what it's saying. It's saying, before any other fathers were, he was father. He is the original father. He, in other words, you don't understand fatherhood by looking at your dads. Some of you have got great dads, and you get a real glimpse of what God is like from your dad. Others of you have dads who are dweebs. You do not get an understanding of what God is like from them. If you want to understand fatherhood, ultimately you have to look beyond your dads. You can look to the one from whom all families were named. The ultimate father, the original father. God is the ultimate father. And when you understand the ultimate father isn't just there in paternity sense, but in a fatherhood sense. He is an active, present, involved dad. Then that will change your lives. In Romans chapter 8, 15, Paul even says that when you receive the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's beautiful. In other words, when you become a believer and the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life, there's a heart cry that comes from you to God and it's Abba, Father. It's not just Father, it's Abba, Father. Now, that's the Greek way of saying Daddy. I know the Swedes are getting all excited thinking, that's our band. No, it's that very cool, okay. But it's not that. It's daddy. That's what it means. Daddy. Like my, my little boy, Michael, doesn't walk around the house saying, Father, Father, oh, Father. You little weirdo. He didn't do that. He says, Dad, Dad. And that's what happens when you get saved. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart. And the natural overflow in your heart is, Dad. You know, sometimes I wonder if I'm saved. And I don't know I'm the pastor and that might make you feel a bit insecure. <laughs> I, I, I look at the dumb things I say. I look at this, the attitudes I display and I think, call myself a Christian, let alone a pastor, call myself a Christian. I think, but you know what? Deep in the heart of hearts, beyond my mind, I, I can't figure out, I can't be a Christian because look at my stupidity. Look at, but in my heart of hearts is a heart's cry. And I cannot deny that. And that heart's cry is, Daddy. I don't know I'm a Christian because of, yeah, okay, I did that. And yeah, the Bible says if I do that, I'm that. Because then I kind of add those up. And then I say, but, but I live this way. And I, that's, that's a negative, And I live this way. And I, so I, don't, I can't figure out I'm a Christian by doing that up here. The way I know I'm a believer is my heart of hearts 
from deep within my spirit, there's a cry, Daddy, Daddy, he is my dad. God, the creator of everything, the eternal God, whom the heavens cannot even contain, the Bible says, is my dad. That's incredible. There's a familiarity with that that's amazing. There was a, a young kid who, whose dad wor- worked in the army and uh, the news came one day that his dad had been promoted and he was high ranking now and he was a brigadier. And the little boy thought for a moment and thought, wow, can I still call him daddy? <laughs> and the thing is, our dad is the highest ranking dad you're ever going to get. And the Bible says it's natural. It's an overflow of the Holy Spirit working in our lives that we will say, Daddy. So the Apostle Paul talks about him being the father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. If your experience of fatherhood was an absent dad or an abusive dad or a distant emotionally dad or an unjust father or your dad was a liar, if that's your impression of fatherhood, then you haven't got the slightest impression of what God is like. Because there is an original father before your father who messed up fatherhood. And he's called God. And God is present, involved, loving, concerns, even though he's the creator. And that's amazing. A kid was out playing football one day in his team. It was Saturday. All the kids were out. The teams were playing. It was an important game. And for the first 20 minutes, he was utterly distracted, looking to the sidelines, looking to the sidelines, couldn't see what he was looking for, kept playing, kept looking to the sidelines, thoroughly distracted, wasn't playing in peak performance. And then all of a sudden, 20 minutes into the game, there was who he's looking for. He had promised he would be there, and there was dad. Dad had arrived 20 minutes late, but he was there. The kid now comes alive. The kid starts playing really well. His friends, his teammates start saying, what happened to him? And the answer is, His dad showed up. And you know what? When you understand the fatherhood of God in your life, then it totally changes your performance in life. It completely changes how you live. It completely changes your ability to be yourself. It completely changes. It frees you up to live the life that God called you to live. God is Father. And Paul starts by praying. I pray. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, And then he goes on to talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 16 and 17, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Say inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That sounds like a very simple statement. But that simple statement, those simple verses cost God an awful lot. For them to be included, even as a possibility, it costs God a huge amount. There's two Greek words for dwell. The Bible says here that um, Christ may dwell in your hearts. And there's two Greek words that could be used in that moment. One is called paraiko, which is to inhabit as a stranger. And the other one is kate. Kiko, I think, which means to house permanently, to reside. I wonder what one he used. Hmm. The good news is, when it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts, he's not talking about he uses you like a youth hostel. He's not talking about God comes by as a backpacker and 
camps out for a bit. It's not talking about God comes and uses you like a stranger in a hotel. It's talking about God moves house. He moves in. You are his new address. Where, where is God on this earth? In his people, the church. He lives in you. That's amazing. God takes up permanent residency in your life when you become a believer. God takes up residency in your life. That's amazing. You're amazed. Amazing. Thanks for your enthusiasm. I said, that's amazing. Christ dwells in your heart permanently. Wow. Outstanding. You dull bunch. This is exciting. Paul prayed that, that, you would, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. That the dwelling of Christ in your hearts isn't a kind of, well, maybe I'll hang out there for a bit and then head on. It's a lot more secure than that. When the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in your life, he's there to stay. Now, you might go off on little tangents in your head. You might go off and do dumb stuff for a bit. But the great news is, he's there to stay. And you know, I don't know if it, I'm sure none of you can relate to this, but you, you've blown it big style and you're, you're sinning and part of your, your flesh enjoys the sinning. But in your heart, you're so depressed. You're so utterly dissatisfied with a life that you're not meant to live. Anyone relate to that? Okay, the rest of you are feeling horrible because you've just lied. Man, you feel so bad. How could I lie? How could I say that? Who, who feels bad about that? Right, you go off and you, you dabble in nonsense and you, you live the life you shouldn't live and it just doesn't sit right. Why? Because Christ has taken up permanent residence in your life and he wants his house to be cool. He wants it to be a nice place to live. Christ has taken up residence in your heart. That's amazing. Our God isn't out there somewhere. He is eternal and he fills everything, sure. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all at once, sure. But in a very real and totally true sense, Christ dwells in your heart through faith. That's the, that's the reality you now live in as a believer. God comes and lives in you. And that's amazing. Paul prays and he says that you'd be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Do you know, we face many challenges in life and the challenges that go on around us are from outside. People saying things, physical illnesses, economic challenges. It's external pressures and problems. But you know, the key to your success, the key to your overcoming, the key to your victory dwells on the inside. It's not about your outside. It's not, okay, I'll overcome the challenge of the economy by having a very secure financial situation. Or I'll overcome the attacks that come from this angle by having a great health plan. Or I'll, I'll, I'll get this position in life, or I'll have this money in the bank, or I'll, I'll get this respect from other people. External things will never bring you success. Your success in life comes from your inner being. And Paul's praying, God, let the church at Ephesus be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit on the inside of them. Because then they're going to face the challenges. Then they're going to face the challenges. Listen to this. Psalm 57. You know, in the, in the book of Psalms, uh, Becky and Michael, are, they're in kids' church just now, and they've been memorizing, the kids have been memorizing different Bible verses, and Angie's been helping them to memorize it, and they get points at kids' church if you memorize Bible verses, and points equals prizes, yeah. So, 
bribery is a great way to teach kids the Bible. It's fantastic. So Becky's been learning uh, different things from the book of Psalms. And, uh, and Angie asked Becky the other day, who wrote that? And she said, a guy called Sam. <laughs> How cool is that? A guy called Sam. Anyway, that, that's nothing to do with what I'm saying here, other than I'm going to talk about the book of Psalms. Psalm 57. At the beginning of Psalms, there's typically a kind of funny introduction. And the introduction uh, was in the original writing. It wasn't like a modern commentator's introduction. But in the original writing of the book of Psalms, uh, the psalmist would write down, sometimes you'd say, I want it to be sung in this style. This is the situation, which this is the title of the song. And this is what it says in Psalm 57. He says, for the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy. So this is a heavy rock uh, psalm of David's. Uh, miktam, which meant use the distortion pedal for this one. <laughs> and, it, and he said, when he fled from the cave, sorry, when he fled from Saul into the cave. Right? So here he was uh, when he fled from Saul to the cave. And this is what David says. Have mercy on me, O gods. Have mercy on me. For in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Right, so here's David hiding in a cave on the run from Saul, singing a heavy metal song. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, who does he take refuge in? God's. Now, wait a minute, he's hiding in a cave. He's not really. He's actually hiding in God's. You see, your overcoming in life is not where you are physically. It's where you are spiritually. Now, you'd be a dumb Egypt to stand around saying, I'll just stand here and let Saul come up to me and I'll pray and I'll, I'll be fine. No, no, hide in the cave as well. Right? You, you're stupid if you face the economic challenges by just, uh, by just, I'll just pray. You know, I won't make any good financial decisions. I'll just pray. Right? That's silly. You know, I won't make any effort in my marriage. I'll just, I'll just pray and my, my dumb wife will figure out she's wrong eventually. And it'll get, no, no. You've got to do stuff, sure. But ultimately, our security in life and our success in life resides in the inner being. And David here, in the run for his life, he didn't see the cave of his, as his security. He saw God at his, as his security. So Paul prays, God strengthen this church on the inside. Now the church at Ephesus was under many external pressures. Now we see that in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2, Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus in verses 1 to 3 says this. To the angel of the church at Ephesus writes, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hands and who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds, your toil and your perseverance. And you've persevered and have endured for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. The church at Ephesus, you see, to be honest, church anywhere in those days was tough. Being a Christian in those days, for many people it meant being fed to the lions in the Roman Colosseums. For many people, you were attacked on this side by the Jewish uh, zealous people. And then on this side, you were attacked by the Romans who want you to get involved with emperor worship. And Christians just didn't fit the mold. And yet, the church was expanding at a phenomenal rate. It was expanding amidst intense pressures and intense persecutions from outside. And Paul's prayer wasn't, get them out of the challenge, God. Paul's prayer was, God, strengthen them on the inside. Because the reality is your ability to overcome the challenges in life come from the Holy Spirit's power in you. God lives in you. And that makes you the majority. 
you overcome that way. Let me illustrate this. Can you, you bring the first one up? That'd be great. <clears throat> All right, Joe, could you, can you come here? In fact, skate forward. Skate, Joe's got a skateboard here. How cool is this? Oh, <laughs> what a dude. Can I have a shot? Come on, give me a shot. This is going to go wrong. All right. Okay. No, I won't. Okay. Hey, man. It's just skateboard. Oh, right. That was what I was planning. So, here we've got a balloon. Just stand face the crowd, man. Don't look at what I'm doing. Right. So here's an ordinary balloon over Joe's head. Now, um, what's... What, anyone get any idea of what might happen? In oh! Sh- sure. Could you bring the other balloon? Keep facing the front, man. Now, this balloon resembles the other balloon. Okay, there's there's a couple of technical differences about this balloon that I want to illustrate to you. Now, Joe is a phenomenal guy. I love Joe. Now, the, the balloons look the same, would you agree? Yeah. But there is something totally different about this balloon versus the other balloon. Uh, and this balloon is entirely different because there's something different on the inside. Let's hear it for Joe. <laughs> Joe, you can go back to see, man. <clears throat> Joe, a gift so you can remember. Here you go. <clears throat> Again, that could have gone really wrong. <clears throat> could live on the edge. So... We understand the balloons looked identical. The only difference was what's on the inside. And the water on the inside of that balloon that's just going for a wander across the front stage just now. It's going home to daddy, see that? (laughs) The only difference between that balloon and the other balloon was it had something on the inside that neutralized what was going on on the outside. The water overcome the heat from the outside. It wasn't petrol, it was water. Now, you can try that at home, kids, as long as your parents let you. But the truth is, your ability to overcome comes from the inside. And Paul said, God, would you strengthen them with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit who dwells. He's there permanently in their lives. So you draw on the strength of God when you're facing the challenges. Don't draw on your own reserves. Don't say, I'm going to make this through. You press into the Lord. Look to him. He is your success and he is your ability to overcome every challenge you face. And then he goes on and he prays about the love of the Son. And this is what I really want to emphasize here today. He says in Ephesians three seventeen to 19, he says that you be being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I believe the deepest need in our humanity is to know the love of God. I don't believe, as Freud would put it, that this is just us projecting our need onto a religion. I believe truly 
This is a God-given need and God himself is the answer to our need. That God's, his love for you is the deepest need you ever have. And when you know you're loved, then everything else, everything else just makes sense. Mother Teresa said this, there is more hunger in the world for love and appreciation in this world than for bread. Well, what's this love like? Paul describes it for us. He tells us that this love is an immeasurable love. He describes it as the bread, the length, the height and the depth of the love of Christ. This love is a four-dimensional love. It is the greatest love. It's indescribable. Jesus love. Who remembers that song? Is very wonderful. You gotta help me then. Jesus love is very wonderful. Jesus love is very wonderful. Oh wonderful love. So high. You can't do your actions. Actions so low. Can't get on. So wide. So wide. You can't get round it. Oh wonderful love. Yay! Clap yourselves, folks. You were great. This love, according to the Bible, is a four-dimensional love. It's wide, it's high, it's long, it's deep. And Paul's praying, would you, God, would you let them understand this immeasurable love? We see a similar reference to this kind of love in Psalm 103, which says in verses 11 to 12, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Can you measure that? If you had a measuring tape, could you measure from the earth to the heavens? Could you? Is it it not the case that that will just keep going? Is it not the case that that's just immeasurable? You You will literally just keep reaching and reaching and reaching and you will never be able to measure as far as the heavens are above the earth. It's impossible. And God used that vocabulary to let you know it's impossible to measure how big his love is for you. And then also he describes as far as the east is from the west. You see, because God loves you, he does things for you. And one of the great things that God does because of Christ's death on the cross is he removes your sins from you. And it says, the Bible says he removes as far as the east is from the west. He didn't say north to south. He could have said that, but he didn't. And the reason he didn't is you can get a measuring tape and you can measure north to south. That is a distance. But if you go east to west around the globe, you're just going to keep going. You're going to keep going and you're going to keep going. That is immeasurable. Immeasurable. Written at a time when most of the world believed that the world was flat. God said, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your transgressions from you. God wants you to know the immeasurableness of his love and the immeasurable impact of his love in your life in forgiving you. This love is immeasurable. It also says it's incomprehensible. Paul said to know the love that surpasses knowledge. Now you're playing with my head, Paul. How can you know something that you can't know? To know the love that surpasses knowledge, he says. How can you know something that can't be known? Simple. You know it in here. Paul's saying you can't know it up here, but you can know it in here. The love of Christ is not something that you intellectually grasp. You see, as a kid, I grew up in a church, in a church home. I was taken to church every Sunday. I went to Sunday school. I learned from phenomenal songs. 
And I heard stories about Jesus. I heard about the love of God. I understood about how Jesus died for us because he loved us and how he rose again the third day. I understood all this stuff mentally. I, I knew all the stories. I'd grown up in that environment. But my life remained unchanged. I was continuing to live my own way, ignore God and do my own thing. What took place for me when I was 15 was this, that Jesus literally got a hold of my life and gave me a revelation of his love. The idea of God's love went from here to here. Now that's 18 inches. But that 18 inches, folks, is what changes your life. Some people know a lot about God's, but they're going to die and go to a lost eternity. Because knowing about God is not enough to save you. The devil knows about God's. It's an intellectual faith, and that kind of faith is not real saving faith. True faith is the language of the heart. That's why it says in Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not in your own understanding. True faith is the language of the heart. It comes from deep within you. It's an incredible gift. And God wants you to be able to believe in him from your heart. Understand the love that you can't understand. How do you do that? Well, I can't understand the love of God up here. It doesn't make sense to me that God would love me. It doesn't make sense to me that, first of all, I cannot even begin to fathom eternity. I can't begin to fathom how do I measure that and it just keeps going and going and going. How do I measure the immeasurable? I can't figure that. But in here, I believe it. And it changes me. I understand maybe even just the tiniest bit of the love of God and that alone, that understanding in my heart is what changes me. The difference in your eternity is everything to do with 18 inches. You know, as a church, we believe in a great message. We exist in a fantastic city. God loves this city and we love this city. We're passionate about the people in the city. Absolutely passionate about them. No matter who they are. Passionate about them, no matter what their background. We're passionate about them. And as a church, we get out of our comfort zones for them. As a church, we deliver food parcels every week to those who need it. As a church, we go and feed the homeless with our homeless teams that go out every week. As a church, we rub shoulders with people who we'd never dare rub shoulders with before. Why? Because God's love. As a church, we want to do everything we can within our abilities to connect with our city and with our culture. Why? Because we've understood something in our hearts and it motivates us. It grips us more than anything. Why do we do what we're doing? Why do many of you give so many hours for free every week? Even though you've got busy jobs, but on top of that, you give so many hours for free serving in the church. Why? Because for you, the thought of God's love has gone from here to here and it's ultimately changed your life. How could you not do a thing when you know the love of God? As Paul says in one place, we're compelled by the love of Christ or we're constrained by the love of Christ. The love of Christ, when truly grasped, will motivate you to live a greater life. And our dream as a church, why do we want a bigger church? Because it's not about us. If it was about us, we'd want to just keep it like this so we can all get to know each other and just be a big, nice, big family and love each other. But stuff that, we love the city. We love God and we know that, yes, your God loves you, but God also loves them. And we want to impact our city for Jesus Christ. So as a dream, we want to grow to 1% of our city's population in the next 20 years. That's 5,000 people with multiple services and multiple locations, reaching as many people for Jesus as we can. Because why? Because we've got some egotistical agenda. God forbid, if that was the case, we may as well pack up shop now. 
Why? Because we've understood the love of Christ. It's gone from here to here and we can't do nothing. We've got to do something. I want to encourage you, allow the love of Christ to so grip you that you don't live a bland Christian life. That you don't live a neutralized Christian life. Let the love of Christ so grip you that it motivates you to live a great Christian life for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. The love of Christ is that 18 inches that makes all the difference. This love is also an unconditional love. Paul says that you may know the love of Christ. He didn't just pray, God, let them know love in general. He said, God, please let them know the love of Christ specifically. The love of Christ is unlike any other kind of love. The love of Christ is loaded with meaning versus just the word love. Paul prayed, God, let them understand the love of Christ. The love of Christ is unconditional. I read this bumper sticker recently. It said, uh, Jesus loves you, but everyone else thinks you're an idiot. And that's about accurate, actually. God's love, no matter what anyone else thinks of you, is unconditional. See, in in the Greek language, again, there were different words used for love. Uh, There was the word eros, which described sensual, sexual, physical, erotic love. There's the word philio, which describes brotherly love, good friends, close companionship. But the Greek language literally had to invent a new words with the arrival of the New Testament. Prior to this, prior to the New Testament being written, the word agape had only been used very, very occasionally in Greek text. But now the word agape appears all over the New Testament. And agape isn't brotherly love, isn't erotic love, it's unconditional love no strings attached love love that just gives it's not about getting it's about giving it's, a, it's love with a commitment with a beginning and no ends love that is about uh, giving and investing in others rather than taking for self love that says i'll love whether you love me back or not that's the kind of love that christ reveals so when paul's praying god let them grasp the love of christ he's not just saying let them grasp love let them have a nice sentimental feeling He's saying, God, let them grasp the unconditional love of God towards humanity. It's massive. It's huge. Classic verse in Romans 5, 8 describes as it says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. You see, that's the difference between God and many of us. We talk about our love. We feel our love, but God demonstrates his love. God gets out of his comfort zone and demonstrates his love. And how did he do that? Well, he did that in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Why will we still hated him? Why are we still shaking our fists at him? Why are we still saying, oh, live like God's not there? God, instead of taking his anger out on us, instead of that, God came and Jesus Christ died for us. And that's the love of Christ. There was a story of a housewife one day. The kids had gone to school. The husband was at work. And she was washing a dish, looking out the window contemplating how utterly meaningless her life was. She was in repetition life. She was just existing. She, she wasn't excited about the future. She was just getting through day by day by day. She thought, what is the point? As she dried this dish, she thought, how many times have I washed you and dried you and washed you and dried you? And she just put the dish down. She threw the napkin down. She went to the bedroom. She packed her belongings, put it in a suitcase and left. That night, the kids came home from school. The husband came home from work. 
and there was no wife. They said, well, where's she gone? They were panicking. Later on in the evening, there was a phone call. It was the wife. She says, I've left. I've had enough of a monotonous life. I'm not coming back, but I'm okay. I'm phoning to say that I'm okay. And she hung up. Weeks went by. Every so often she would phone and they would plead with her on the phone to come back and assure her that she was loved and please come back. But she refused. She phoned just to let them know she's okay, but she wanted nothing to do with them. Weeks went by. After a month or so, the husband got a private investigator involved and the private investigator successfully, after several days of research, managed to trace down the whereabouts of the wife. She was across the country in another part of the country living in a, in a little bed set above a restaurant where she was working as a waitress. As soon as the husband found out where she was, he got in the car immediately and travelled the distance right across the country to where she was now living. It was the evening and he knocked on the door and the wife answered the door. She saw her husband there and she simply turned around, walked to the bedroom, packed her belongings, got the suitcase and followed her husband to the car. They sat in silence as they drove for hours back to their house. When they arrived back to the house, the husband broke the silence and said, well, why is it on the phone when you phones? We would plead with you. We would tell you that we loved you. We would plead with you and ask you to come home. But all those times you never came. And she said, I heard you say you love me, but it was only until you came for me that I really believed it. And you see, God in heaven has always loved the human race. No matter how much we've walked away from him and how much we've rejected him, not just historically, but currently, you're walking and living like he's not there. You're living a life like God isn't there, like you have no responsibility, like he didn't create you, like you, you owe him nothing. Who's God? Don't even know if he's there or not anyway. We've lived like that, yet God continues to consistently say he loves the human race. And then ultimately, 2,000 years ago, God actually came for us. God took on human flesh, born of a virgin, lived a great life. 30 years into his life, Jesus died on a cross, but it wasn't an accident. It was planned. He died on the cross specifically to take away your sin and my sin. The sins that have kept us separate from God. The sins that would have permitted us, if we died in our sins, would have permitted us from going, forbidden us to go into heaven. Our sins would, without Jesus, you're going to hell with your sins to pay the price for your own sins. But you don't need to. Because God not only loves you, he did something about that. He demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died on our behalf. He took your sin. He took your punishment. He took your hell. So you can have his heaven, his forgiveness, his righteousness. And on the third day, he rose again. He's alive right now. And by putting your faith in him, you can be eternally saved. And that's the truth. So maybe today, some of you are here and you think, I've been walking without God. I've been living a life without God. Then today, why not you make a decision to let the reality go from here to here and say, God, I'm going to put my faith in you. And I'm going to, from now on, I'm going to live a wholehearted life for your glory. Why not make that decision? At the end, I'll give you the opportunity to do that. It's an un, unconditional love that Paul is describing. It says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The word world is the Greek word Cosmos. It means the world and the universe, the inhabitants of the earth, men and the human family. It means the ungodly multitude, the whole mass of people alienated from God. 
It wasn't so God so loved the nice world. The nice worlds of butterflies and bunny rabbits and nice hills and sunshine. God so loved the ugly worlds of men who were hostile towards God. God so loved that world, the ugly, dirty, mean world, the sinful world, the reprobate world. God loved that world that he gave his one and only son. That is a love that you need to grasp. <clears throat> the next thing of this love is, is a stabilizing love. It says that you may be rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded. Paul uses two metaphors, a biological metaphor and an architectural metaphor. He talks about roots and he talks about foundations. And both give stability. You see, when you understand the love of God, it stabilizes your life. When you understand that God loves you unconditionally, immeasurably, incomprehensibly, it gives you such a stability in life. You've got roots now. And this tree, no matter what storm comes, is rooted. When you understand that kind of love, you have foundations. And when you've got good foundations, you can build a big house, a solid house, a strong house. And Paul says that that's the kind of love that God has for you. It says in 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear is to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. When you understand the love of God, fear will go. Now, I'm not talking about a wholesome fear of God, a deep respect and reverence. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fear and the dread of his judgment. The tiptoeing around God like he's going to hit you with a lightning bolt any moment. Now, as I say, you've got to have a reverence for God. Of course, I live with that. But at the same time, I live with a freedom before God, knowing that my heavenly father loves me. It's like a father sitting on a sofa watching his kid. And the kid's in the middle of the living room. The kid's having a wee dance. And the, and the father's watching the son. And the father's like this, scowling at the kids. Now, the kid started with all this enthusiasm, doing a wee jig in front of the father. But it's not going to be long before the kid starts thinking, okay. And just walks off. Scenario number two. The kid's having a wee jig in front of the father. And the father's sitting on the sofa. And instead of sitting like this, the father's like this. Yay, go, go on, do that. And, I, and the, what, the kid's getting more excited and trying new things and, and doing everything. And, the, and he's getting, what happens is the kid's freed up. And his interaction takes place. If your view of the father is he's like this. Then you've misunderstood the father. Paul prays. Lord, let them understand the love of God. Let them be grounded and rooted in that love because that will give you such a stability and perfect love casts out fear. You'll be liberated to live a stable, strong, wholesome, blessed life. You'll also, you know what else will happen? What people think of you will mean less to you than what God thinks of you. Many of you are living with such an awareness of what the people think of me. Why did they say that? Do they like me or not? You're yearning for acceptance and listen, your yearning can only be satisfied in a God who will not let you down. If you're trying to find that acceptance from a human being, I promise you, every human being, even the best of them, will let you down at times. But God Almighty, who is eternal and consistent, will never let you down. He becomes your rooting. He becomes your founding in life. And then it also says that this love is an unlocking love. He says that you may be filled to all the fullness of God's. You know, when you grasp the love of God, the Bible says you'll be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's a strange thought because I thought, wait a minute, I thought I was filled with God. You know, did I get 10% of God? See, when God dwells in my heart through faith, well, does that mean I got, I got this bit of God? I got his finger? 
you know, what, what did I get of God then? How, how do I get more of God then? Well, can I get a bit more in here, please? Right, well, what, that's a weird thought. How can you not? I thought we were already filled with the fullness of God. You are. But the way you live in the fullness in your experience is by grasping the love of God. I don't know about you, but when I spend time with great people, and what I mean by great people is people who truly understand God. It's not the rhetoric, it's not the talk. You know behind the surface there, there's a walk with God, there's a secret life. There's a depth, there's a richness. They are alive in their faith, and you can see it in their eyes. When you spend time with them, do you not feel God? Do you not see miracles? Do people's lives not get changed around people like that? You see, when you've got a deeper grasp of God's love, it releases the great presence of God from within you. You see, God's not out there trying to get in here. God's in here trying to break out. And by you grasping and understanding the love of God, then it gives a a flow, an ability for the presence of God to flow from your life out into this world that so desperately needs the love of God. Then Paul ends with this doxology. Doxology, incidentally, is a Greek word, doxa and logos, which means belief and speaking. It means a declaration of your belief and an acclamation of your praise towards God. And this is what he says. Listen to this great declaration. Ephesians 2, 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far abundantly, so far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Wow. Notice Paul sandwiches his great prayer with the Father. He starts with the Father, the Father with whom, by whom every family in heaven and earth are named. Then he ends with, the Father is great. He ends with worship and declaration. Jesus also did this in his prayer. He said, he said when you pray, start by praying, our Father who art in heaven. In other words, get your eyes up first. And then at the end of the prayer, he says, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory. This is how Paul prayed. Starts with a great declaration of how great God is. Paul says, him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. Sometimes we limit God with our asking and our thinking. You see, human beings are limited. We're limited in our thinking. We, we find it hard to imagine great things. We certainly wouldn't expect the reality of those great things. But what we have to understand about God is he's different to us. God is unlimited. Jesus Christ demonstrated that in his life. He lived an unlimited life. No barrier could hold him back. If he wanted to go somewhere, he would go there. Jesus Christ demonstrated the unlimitedness of God. So when we're approaching God, we shouldn't come with a limited mindset. We should come with an unlimited mindset. Not a naive or a silly mindset or a kind of strange bravado mindset. I don't mean that. I mean with a, a genuine awesome expectation of the greatness of God towards your life <clears throat> and understand that God is unlimited there's a story of a, a famous professional golfer and he was invited by a, a Saudi Arabian prince to come and uh, spend a week with him coaching him golf the Saudi Arabian prince had millions and millions of pounds very wealthy and he spent he spent the week with this golfer showing him how to hold the club how to play well 
helping him, giving him techniques. They became good friends in that week. And at the end of the week, the Saudi Arabian prince said, I would like to give you a thank you present as appreciation of you coming and helping me. What could I give you? And the golfer said, listen, I've had a great time. This has been a holiday for me as well. This is, it's been enough just to be here. Thank you very much. He said, no, no, no. I want to give you something. You must tell me what I can give you. So the golfer thought on his feet and said, well, I collect clubs. How about a club? Sir Arabian Prince said, leave it with me. Anyway, a week or so passed. The golfer was back home and he expected a parcel to arrive any day with this golf club. And he was wondering, wonder what this is going to be like. Will it be a gold putter? or He didn't know what it was going to be. He was, he was just waiting for a long parcel. Anyway, after about a month, a letter came in the post. An official letter from the Saudi Arabian prince. He opened the letter and the letter said, Dear so-and-so, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. As promised, here is your golf club. This is a 500-acre golf club, uh, which is located in... <laughs> You see, we think like this, but when you're dealing with God, who is the God of heaven and earth, we're dealing with God unlimited. And all of a sudden, our prayers must take on bigger thinking mentalities. We must approach God on the basis of what he's like rather than what we're like. You see, you say, God, I need a pounds, but God is a million at his disposal. You say, God, would you heal my headache? And if it doesn't work, I'll take paracetamol. But God is just as easily able to heal the headache as he is the the terminal cancer. God is unlimited beyond all we can ask or think. God is able. God is able. And do you know what? He wants you to think big. Why would that verse be there if God didn't want you to think big? Would he like hold the car in front of you? I can do more than you can ask or imagine. But I'm not going (laughs) to. Would he do that? Of course he wouldn't. Why would God say that? I'll tell you why. Because he wants you to break beyond your confines. He wants churches to dream big. He wants Christians to dream big like like their dad's God or something. He wants Christians to extend the boundaries of their life and push out the barriers and do the impossible and bring glory to God. He wants that. Not to live some strange, religious, restricted, self-abasing, silly little life. That's not what Paul's describing here. Although Paul himself lived in many challenges, he lived a victorious life. Because why? Because God's an unlimited victorious God. So you need to plug into that God and walk with him. God is willing. It says in Romans 8, 31 to 32, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not with them also freely give us all things? God's for you. Who can be against you? He didn't hold back his son. He demonstrated the ultimate demonstration of unconditional love by giving his son on your behalf. So why do you think now he's withholding? Peter, I've so longed for these dreams to come true in my life. Well, why do you think it can't? Why do you think it can't? Why can't God empower you to live the life he dreamt that you could live? Why can't God paint the canvas of your heart? Big life, big dreams, big impact. God is able, and not, not only able, he is willing. And he puts this here to provoke you to think bigger, to draw on him, to reach to him. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according 
to the power at work within us. God is able to do great things not because you muster up your faith. Right, now I can see it happen. You see, when I'm praying for the sick, for example, at the end of services, we always give opportunity if we want to pray for the sick. When I'm praying for the sick, sometimes I'm intimidated by the person. What they say is in their life. They say, the doctors have told me I've got this. And I think, boy, that's a big one. And it intimidates me. Why? Because your pastor's a human as well. But then I suddenly realize it's not me versus that sickness. It's Christ in me versus that sickness. Then all of a sudden, the odds have dramatically changed. I mean, hugely. It's the creator versus the sickness rather than the preacher who feels a bit intimidated versus the sickness. God is able to do immeasurably far beyond all you can ask or imagine according to the power at work within you. You plus God are the majority and walking with God empowers you to live a life that overcomes. And then it ends with this. To him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. To him be glory in the church. To Ronaldo be glory in Real Madrid. To Bono be glory in the music industry. To Roger Federer be glory in Wimbledon. But to Jesus Christ be glory in the church. To Ronaldo be glory in Real Madrid for a few years. To Roger Federer be glory in Wimbledon for long enough. <laughs> to Bono be glory in the music industry for a good long time. But to Jesus Christ be glory in the church throughout all generations, forever and ever, and ever and ever. To him be the glory. Amen. Forever and ever, Lord, to you be the glory. Okay, we're going to end the service. In a moment, I'm going to pray. You know what? We're going to give an opportunity as well. Paul prayed that people would grasp the love of God. Paul prayed that. So in a moment, I'm going to pray that for you. But then I'm also going to give you an opportunity. If you want someone to pray with you, we're going to go into a ministry song just now. We don't often do this, but we're just going to make it an opportunity. If you want to come to the front, there's going to be leaders available at the front. And we're going to give you the opportunity, if you want to be prayed for, and you think, you know what, Peter, I know the love of Christ, but I want to know the love of Christ. Can you pray, or can we pray over my life, like Paul prayed over the church at Ephesus, that they would know the love of Christ? Well, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to take time. In this next song, your opportunity is just to come forward. Don't feel embarrassed. Come forward. If you're up on the balcony, just make your way down, come forward and be prayed for. And get someone just to lay hands on you and pray for you that God will impart to you a revelation understanding of the incredibleness of the love of God that goes beyond what you can grasp up here. But truly, you can grasp it in here. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord God, we worship and adore you, God. And we say like Paul, to you be glory in the church forever and ever. Amen. Jesus Christ, you're amazing. You have demonstrated to us a love that we had never grasped. You've revealed to us a love that was beyond our understanding of what love was. We thought love was like this, but then you taught us what real love's about. Your love is courageous. Your love is 
motivated you to come and demonstrate ultimate sacrifice on the behalf of the human race. God, I pray for my friends here. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this precious church. Thank you for this growing church. I pray, God, for the precious people here today, God, that they would, by your Holy Spirit's enabling, grasp deep in their spirits the love of Christ. I pray, God, it would give them such stability. I pray, God, it would give them such joy. I pray, God, the love of Christ in the hearts would result in them being changed forever. I pray, God, as, as specifically for those who come forward, I pray that as, as hands are laid on them, and that prayer is very simply prayed over them, I pray, God, that they would have an understanding of the love of Christ, not just in that moment, but from that moment onwards, there'd be a deepening, a dawning in their hearts over the months ahead of the incredibleness of the love of Christ. I pray it would grip them. I pray it would not only grip them, I pray it would motivate them. I pray their lives would change as a result. In Jesus' name. Keep your eyes closed for a moment. If there's anyone here today and you know that you are far from God, you've never committed your life to Jesus, you've, you've intellectually believed that God is out there, maybe, but you've never truly given your whole life to him. And today you've heard that God gave his whole life for you. Jesus died and he rose again. He did that because he loves you. And today I'm going to give you an opportunity to, for you to put your faith in him and to commit your life to him. And the Bible promises as you do that, your sins are removed and you are given eternal life. You're forgiven and you have an eternal new life with God. So that's you today and you know you need to get right with God. I invite you to pray this prayer with me just now. Very simply to repeat this prayer after me. Quietly under your breath, repeat this after me. Pray, dear Lord God, I thank you that you are a great God. I thank you that you are a loving God. God, I, I ask you to be part of my life from this day forward. Jesus, thank you for dying for me in that cross shedding your blood so that I could be forgiven for all my sins. I fully acknowledge that I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness. Please in this moment forgive me. Jesus, I believe that on the third day you rose from the dead and I believe you're alive forever and ever. Jesus, right now, I pledge my allegiance to you from this day forward. I commit myself to being your follower. I declare you to be the Lord of my life. Thanks, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Thanks for accepting me today as your child. Amen. Okay, keep your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer, if you made that commitment to God, then you have just done a phenomenal thing. And I really believe that God has heard your prayer. I would love the privilege of praying for you. If you made that commitment, I'd love to pray for you and ask God to bless you as you embark on this new journey with God. In order to know who I'm praying for, I'm not going to call you to the front. I'm just going to ask you where you are. In order to know who I'm praying for, would you simply identify yourself by quickly raising your hand if you prayed that prayer? made that commitment.
Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Just quickly put your hand up high so I can see it. Put it down again. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? Lord, I pray for all my friends today. They've made that commitment before you. They've said yes to you. And God, I believe that in this moment you accept them. I pray, Father, let them be filled with the Holy Spirit right now. Let them know the strengthening in their inner being and the acceptance of God. In Jesus' name.